0: Okay, I'm going to give you a little bit of time to look for and find Micah chapter five. That's where we're going to be spending most of our time. Uh, a lot of times when we sing a song, it like transports us back. So just a little bit ago, we sang uh, "Angels We Have Heard on High," and every time I sing that song, it transports me back to when I was in fifth grade, and believe it or not, I was a soprano in a in a choir in our school when we were singing that song. I was never a soprano after that. But um but it just it transports me back there. Um, when you hear the word Bethlehem, my guess is most of us immediately are transported to the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. It's just like that just oh that's it. And and we have maybe warm feelings of, of singing Christmas Eve services or just, you know, gentle lowing cows. Or, I mean, just that's kind of the feeling that we have. Well, this sermon is going to be about Bethlehem uh, and the meaning that God wants to you to attach to Bethlehem, uh, but there's going to be a little bit different of a um, filling up of the cup, so to speak, of, of the content of what God wants you to think of when you think of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Because God really does want you to, when you hear the word Bethlehem, to attach certain feelings, certain impressions, certain lessons, certain truths to that word. I'm not saying that what I'll bring about today will be the only things that you should think about, but I think it is very purposeful by God that he chose Bethlehem for the birth of his son in this world. <clears throat> Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Now most of us are familiar with that verse from the New Testament passages, which speak of Joseph and Mary making their journey to the little town of Bethlehem because this is the place where King David was born. Those sorts of images come to our mind. But we are usually not so familiar with the original context of which that prophecy was given. So, I want to take you into that world. And I'm not going to read a lot of passages from that world, but, but I'm going to actually draw from the, the environment that was happening during that time in Micah. And from the world of which Micah wrote the prophecy, I want us to um, have a, a maybe a different picture of uh, what it means that God sent his son in Bethlehem. So let's go ahead and read the text itself. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 5a. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, He shall give them up. God shall give them up, give up His people, until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of His brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And He shall stand and shepherd His flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Micah was a prophet who ministered around 700 BC. His ministry overlaps with the prophet Isaiah. In 722, the northern kingdom of Israel, Israel had divided between a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had been captured by this invading army of the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom was being threatened. In 701, the Assyrian king Sennacherib, you don't need to remember that name, but he is going to lay siege to Jerusalem. And so Micah lives in this time of political turmoil and corruption. Think about, try to put yourself in their their position. Most of the people lived in fear of a powerful Assyrian threat bearing down upon them. At the same time, many of the economic and political leaders in Israel were taking advantage of the situation. They were using the turmoil for their own political gain. They did not care for the welfare of the people. They didn't care for their suffering. And Micah was a prophet that actually confronts the injustices of the political leaders in and around Israel, Jerusalem. And it just so happens that as Micah is is preaching the need for reform, as he's doing that, God raises up one of the last good kings of Jerusalem. His name is King Hezekiah. Again, you don't have to remember all this. I just want you to get the feel of what's happening. There are actually several chapters dedicated to this time period, both in the book of 2 Kings and the book of 2 Chronicles. You can go back and read them later on. In addition to like internal reforms, Hezekiah was greatly used of God to stand up to this invading army. Syrians conquering everybody in their path, wiping out the northern kingdom. They come to Jerusalem, and, and Hezekiah says, No, we will not bow to you. It's really kind of a powerful time. Um, Hezekiah is a breath of fresh air in a time of terrible evil. Now, in order to understand how much of a breath of fresh air, his father, Ahaz, is one of the worst kings ever. Ahaz actually boards up the temple. He makes alliances with the Syrians. He abandons uh, true worship of God. He, he doesn't care about the northern kingdom. He's just—he's a terrible king. And even when Isaiah, who was sent to Ahaz, actually said, Ahaz, you got to get it together. you got to repent. He doesn't do anything. Now, so you can see this incredible contrast between Ahaz and then Hezekiah. Ahaz represents the failure of David's line. Hezekiah represents the renewed hope that there would be a son of David who would bring peace to God's people. Now, even without the prophetic promises, America does not have prophetic promises given to her like Israel had prophetic promises given to, to her. But even without those prophetic promises, we can understand the feelings of Micah's day. We are coming into a year of an election cycle. And we understand political corruption, do we not? We understand the threat of foreign powers. We understand what it means to have presidents who work more to destroy Christianity than to embrace it. We get all these things. And we understand what it means to hope for and yearn for a leader who would reverse the downward trend. So when Hezekiah comes along, the people's hopes were raised. Maybe Hezekiah would be the king who would bring about the promised peace. Hezekiah would stand against the Assyrian king. He wouldn't be intimidated. He does, in a sense, uh, lead uh, Jerusalem to a a semi-victory against the Assyrians. All these good reforms. He opens up the temple, restores temple worship. All these kind of things going on in his time. You can understand. I'm not ask, not getting mention any names, but you got in your mind, even in this coming year, oh, if my leader gets into office, things will be good. If my leader doesn't get into office, things will be terrible, right? This is the environment of hope in which Micah 5 is written. And verse 1 says, Micah prophesies, Muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Like pull together, Jerusalem, the army. We got We're gonna. It's gonna be a rough day. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the key, on the cheek. They're basically saying Hezekiah is gonna get a bloody nose. Now, if you're placing your hope in Hezekiah, this is not the prophecy you want to hear. See, this is the context of this. See, you are hoping. God would miraculously use Hezekiah to wipe out the Assyrians. But rather than giving this sort of prophecy, Micah says, "Mm, no, it's going to be struck on the cheek. This is a discouraging word. Hezekiah would not destroy the Assyrians. And history actually bears this out. The Assyrian army had destroyed, devastated most of surrounding, the towns surrounding uh, Jerusalem. And in Hezekiah's own report, and I know he's not going to diss himself at all, but he, he says, Hezekiah was shut up in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. Um, and at the end of the day, Hezekiah is forced to pay tribute to the Assyrians. So this is not what they were hoping for. And I guarantee you, whatever leader gets in the office, it will not be everything you hope for. So rather than God saying, I will use the strength of my good king Hezekiah to bring about the peace that that my people hope for, I'm not going to do it. Micah actually rips away hope from them. Micah is going to give a message of hope, but it's not the one that they wanted. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient of day. In Micah's day, Bethlehem was the last place, any Israelite would have been looking for hope. Now that may sound strange to you, because we think, oh, Bethlehem, the city of David, the place of hope, did the Messiah's, no. You see, our hopes of Bethlehem being the place come from this passage right here. You see, our, in, our thinking has been influenced by the, the story of Christ's birth in Luke. we were influenced by the fact that Joseph and Mary are providentially orchestrated to Bethlehem, and we're, all those kind of things are good. But I want to tell you this. Do you realize it's not necessary for a son of David to be born in Bethlehem? Just think that through a second. How many of you were born in the same hometown as your parents? Does that make you any less their their child? You understand what I'm saying here? It's not Bethlehem that makes someone a son of David. In fact... We're not always told where the kings were born, but ever since the uh, David actually conquers Jerusalem and sets up his palace, my guess is that most of his kids and grandkids and great-grandkids were born in the palace in Jerusalem, not in Bethlehem. And in its historical context, Bethlehem would have been the last place. Because during the siege of Jerusalem, remember Bethlehem's about five miles outside of Jerusalem? Bethlehem is situated in the camp of the enemy. How could the promised ruler who will bring us peace be rose up from? the land where the enemy's camp is. And even before the Assyrians came in, and this is in the prophecy here, even even before the Assyrians occupy it, Bethlehem is so small of a town that, that Hezekiah can't even get a full troop of troops from that place. Here's what I'm telling you. Here's what I want you to put in your cup of Bethlehem when you think about what Bethlehem means. Bethlehem represented the weakness and insignificance of man, even the best of men. This is what God intends. You see, true and lasting peace for which your heart yearns will not be given to you by any human man. It will be established by God's power alone. You see, the danger of a good king is real. You see a good king, they're being used of God, and, and you're saying, wow, this is wonderful, and you begin to attach your hopes upon him. Or her. And God says, Do not rely upon men. Psalm 146 says it very well. Put not your trust in princes. In a son of whom, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is, a, is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God. Bethlehem is God. It is God saying, I will give you peace. We are told in verse 2 that the ruler will have ancient origins. It could just mean that he will be a true son of David, of of the physical line of David. That's that's certainly in the text. But it's also not out of the question. This idea of this origin of ancient origins and and, uh, of old certainly points to this idea that the Messiah will be divine. Divine. You see, God says, what is the least significant place I can find to choose my Redeemer? Because it's going to be me who is redeeming. And I would argue that the strength, I mean, uh, the promised peace doesn't even depend on the strength of the Davidic line. God waits for the Davidic line to fail completely before He sends His promised Messiah. And in Matthew 2, do you know that Jesus is only a a son of David? In in Matthew 2, I know that Luke may have a different uh, lineage that's going on there through Mary, but but in in Matthew, the Davidic line, Jesus is only a son of David through adoption. But even in Hezekiah's day... Even in Hezekiah's day, God wants to show that Hezekiah is not the one who will bring the peace. Guess what God does? You may not know this story. It's really fun to go back and read this. He gives Hezekiah a sickness. At the moment when Hezekiah is on the verge of, like, I'm doing all the good things in Israel, of course God needs me. And God gives him a sickness. And then God sends the prophet and says, Oh, by the way, you're going to die by this sickness. And Hezekiah's like, No, 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 I can't die. I can't die. And he cries out to God. Nothing wrong with him crying out to God. Give me more life. And God graciously gives him 15 more years of life. But you know what happens in those 15 years? Oh, it's terrible. Terrible years. Number one. Hezekiah invites the Babylonians in, the the envoys to come and check out. You know why he invites those those Babylonians in? Because, ah, the Babylonians are so far away, they're not a threat. And maybe the Babylonians will actually be an ally to help us defeat the Assyrians. So he invites them in. Strangely enough, in another 120 years, it is the Babylonians who destroy Jerusalem. Also, at the time of Hezekiah's sickness, he doesn't have an heir. He's probably saying, Lord, I need more time to have an heir. And three years later, he does have an heir. Do you know who that heir is? What? Manasseh. Now, mm, Manasseh, good king? <laughs> so the one point, and this is, I have a, this is a two-point sermon, but the one point is that you should have in your cup that whether it's a good king you're putting your trust in or a terrible nation that's coming against you, you should not put your hope in human kings. Trust in God's power alone. The second point really comes a little bit more from Jeremiah, but it's going to be a smattering. It's going to be about God's compassion for the suffering of his people. So when you hear Jerusalem, when you hear Bethlehem, you are to think about weeping. Isn't that interesting? Like we we hear Bethlehem, we hear the song, we hear quietness, we cows lowing, whatever. Bethlehem is a place of weeping. It is a place of suffering. That's what it is. Jeremiah 31, now Jeremiah is a prophet. You have to fast forward. He he doesn't live during Micah's time. He lives during the time when Israel, Jerusalem is destroyed and and God's people are deported to Babylon. And Jeremiah is prophesying during this time and and, uh, weeping over this and all the destruction of of, uh, Jerusalem. Jeremiah 31 is where we get the promises of the new covenant. But before we get these promises of the new covenant, in Jeremiah 31.15, if you want to turn there, you can. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for you, for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. So there's going to be a time when I'm going to bring my people back. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Now these verses do not mention Bethlehem directly. But they do refer to Rachel's weeping in a place called Rama. And what you have to understand is that when Jerusalem was conquered, its population was deported to Babylon. The staging ground for this deportation was a few miles outside of Jerusalem. Actually, to the north of Jerusalem, a place called Rama. Now, Bethlehem is five miles to the south. But Jeremiah is not that concerned with the the, the point, like exact location geographically. He sees this as close enough. And so he makes the connection to Rachel. And he says, it is as if Rachel is turning over in her grave as God's people... uh, men women and children are being deported to Babylon and so she is weeping at this time now why would we choose Rachel as weeping well because she she dies in childbirth in Bethlehem in that region and so Rachel becomes this place of sorrow this place of disappointment this place of frustration and there was not much more disappointment than when God's people were being exiled to Babylon If you were living during the time of that deportation, I'm telling you, you would say, Has God forgotten me? Is there no love of God? Dan, you're talking about the love of God? Well, when you're being deported and you're weeping over this, you wonder whether God is real. I know you guys suffer. I know you experience turmoil. I know that this, it could be increasing over the years to come. I don't know what is actually going to happen. I'm not a prophet. But I'm telling you, God understands the weeping of his people. And it was very purposeful that he chooses Bethlehem to be the place where his Savior would come into the world. Because he wants his people to know that it is his compassion over their suffering that moved him to send his son into the world. So we've got on the one hand, the emptiness of man's strength and the power of God. That's one thing in Bethlehem. On the other hand, we have the suffering of God's people and the incredible compassion that God has for his people. That's what you should think about Bethlehem. It's not by accident that when Jesus was born into the world, Herod wants to destroy the, the Messiah, and so he has even more children in Bethlehem killed. Again, where is God in this? How can you be sending the Son of God into the world to be compassionate for people in suffering, and at the very moment when that's happening, allow other children to die? Well, that's you. I know every one of you got stories. If you love me, God, how do you allow this to happen? God has compassion for the suffering of his people. Let's turn back to Micah chapter 5, looking at verses 3 through 5a. What, what is it that this Messiah would accomplish? And we'll go through this very quickly. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. What he's basically saying is all those who have been scattered throughout history, I will bring back to myself. Now, of course, this is the gospel going forth. Um, People coming in, but I would even say that there's a gathering of those who died during the deportation in Jerusalem. He's gathering them to himself. Jesus is just as much their ruler and king as he is during the time when uh, Jesus lived on the earth. He's going to bring them all back. And I believe throughout the history of the world, God is calling Jews to himself. Many of the elect Jews calling them to the Messiah. He's also calling many Gentiles to himself throughout the world. And in the end, we will say, all Israel is saved. I don't know exactly how that all works out, but we will be like, he has lost none. He has called them all to himself. That's who he is. He's the one gathering his people because he's the Messiah. In verse 4 he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. It's not not accidental why in John 10 Jesus declares himself as the good shepherd. He's the one who lays down his life for the sheep. You see, the glory of Jesus as shepherd, that's who he is. He's the one who perfectly cares for his people. Not self-interest, not greed, not corruption. He is truly concerned for you. That's the good shepherd. And he does this in the strength of the Lord. Not in human strength. Not in even his own strength. I think it's amazing to me that as Jesus shepherds his people, he does it all in reliance upon the strength of the Holy Spirit in order to do that. It's just amazing. So your hopes are not laid in a man... Your hopes are laid in God himself. And it is the majesty of the name of the Lord is God that gets the strength. If God had used Hezekiah to do it, we'd be praising Hezekiah. But when we lift up Jesus Christ and say that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, we are basically saying, praise be to God. Glory to him in the highest. They're not separate like Jesus is robbing glory from God. That's the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three in one. You worship one, you worship all three. That sort of mindset. And then they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And I love this because this is talking about no foreign powers left. Right? You got the enemies within corruption. You got the Assyrians from without or the Babylonians. Oh, that no problem now because Jesus' kingdom extends to the ends of the earth. Every king will bow. Complete security. And I don't think it's just a a kingdom uh, that some people get to enjoy at the end of time. It is the new heavens, new earth, the resurrection kingdom, that one in which all people from the first to be saved all the way throughout the Old Testament to the last person, all of them together will dwell securely in God's kingdom. And verse 5, he shall be their peace. Jesus is the ruler you need. <clears throat> he is the good shepherd. He is your peace. Regardless of the politics in which you live, listen to the words of King Jesus. Before he goes to his own death, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, God chose Bethlehem because it was small and insignificant, because He wanted to magnify His power. He chose Bethlehem because it was a place of suffering, and He wanted to magnify His compassion. Here are some conclusions. Don't trust in good princes around you. They will fail you. They will not give you the peace for which you long. And I would take this a step further because it's not just princes in whom we trust. It could be parents, it could be spouses, it could be friends, it could be employers, it could be yourself. I have prided myself in being a strong guy. It makes it easy to trust in my strength to bring about the peace that I want. God wants to rob the strength of his people so that they will look to Christ alone. Secondly, don't fear bad princes. Jesus tells you plainly he has overcome the world. Princes can give you terrible suffering in this life. It can be bad. I'm not saying that we shouldn't hope for better leaders and pray for better leaders. I'm just saying that we are not to live in fear of bad princes. and if God brings the very opposite of the things that you hope for in your time your life right now please do not doubt his compassion towards you I think we live in a day where the church in America is losing influence I pray for revival to occur reformation to occur And I even strive to see that happen. I I teach and I preach and I call people to repentance and faith and submission to the Word of God and to Christ alone. But my hopes for peace do not rely in the church. My hopes for peace lie in the One who was born in the little town of Bethlehem. Amen.